You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, the official podcast of the Coastal LA Singles Ministry, where our focus is reaching up, reaching in, and reaching out. Good morning, ladies. Welcome. So strap in. You are uh, in for a great treat with Jen this morning. I know you. some of you may have already had two lessons, and I know this will be your third, and you have one more after this. You guys are doing great. <sighs> strap in. You're going to do great. I uh, get the um, honor of introducing our guest speaker for this morning for the ladies, Jen Konzen. Uh, she is a licensed marriage and family therapist, a certified sex therapist, a certified chemical dependency counselor, take a deep breath, and an adjunct professor at Alliant University, Bethel University, and Point Loma Nazarene University. But on a more personal note, Jen and her husband Tim lead in the marriage ministry and the youth and family ministry. They have four kids, three of them in college, one of them in high school. She was converted in the campus ministry and also served on staff in the singles ministry. She has been a disciple for over 30 years. So if we could give Jen a warm welcome this morning. Well, it is so fun to be with you. I have a first question to ask. Um, I've spoken in some of your congregations, so I just want to know my audience. Who has already heard me speak on sexuality? Okay, there's a few of you. There's going to be a teeny bit of a repeat, but what do they say? The best learning is you need repetition, right? No, there is definitely going to be some repeat, but um, this isn't staying up. I'm a little tall, so there we go. So I'm just going to jump in because I have so much to share with you, and the reality is I only have... 50 minutes to do it in. Um, if by chance you want these slides, you just send my, send me um, uh, to jenniferconson at yahoo.com and I'll reply and give you the slides. So I know it's hard to take notes. Um, I'm going to jump right in. This is what I do professionally. Um, I am a therapist and I do specialize in sexuality. And so people say to me, you're a disciple and you're a sex therapist? Can you do that? And then they ask me, what do I do in the office? And I said, it's G-rated physically. And sometimes PG when we do a hand exercise on touch. And then it's X-rated verbally. Yes. But yeah, no, it's all okay. Nobody's doing anything in my office. So um, it's really quite a joy to be able to speak to you because... Us married folks, who's married in this room? Put your hand up. Is there anybody married in this room? There we go. Got any more? There's okay. So us married folks, okay, we talk about sexuality, but the single folks feel like, hello, can we also talk about this? It's as if you're not sexual until you're married. Right? So in the, so I have a book. I, I hope you all buy it. It's out on the tables. And I'm not saying that to promote myself, but because I really do feel like it would benefit every single one of you. It's called Redeemed Sexuality. It's out there. And on the back cover, it says, you are a sexual person. It's the opening line. And it's the whole opening chapter. Why? Because we tend to do that where you're not sexual until you're married. When actually you're conceived as a sexual being and then you live your entire life as a sexual being and it doesn't just begin when the switch goes on at marriage right so hopefully i'm going to say some things that are incredibly uncomfortable and embarrassing to you today i just want to let you know this is my family those are the four kids and then uh yes i gosh it's hard for me to even look at this picture because i just whoo I love those beings. I, I, I look at those and go, wow, those came out of my body. <laughs> well, except for the oldest one there. <laughs> so, um, this topic, when you saw the name for it, I, I'm not, we don't, there's too many of you, but if I were in a smaller group, I'd say, what did you think? Usually people go, great, another lesson on purity on how not to wear low shirts and how not to wear too short of shorts and how not to make the brother struggle. Another lesson on purity and how to uh, rein it in. I don't think that's working very well. So 
we're going to do something a little different. I do want to share with you, like she said, I, I was converted in the campus. I then worked as an intern in the singles ministry and led singles. That's where I met my husband. And during that time, I went through a lot. So I'm going to share that as we go. The reality is, though, we're going to talk about a lot of things that might be a little challenging for you. You might have a background where there's sexual abuse or molestation in your background, where there's been violating touch or other kinds of violations to your own body and your own sexuality. So this topic can be hard. and It's okay if you find yourself needing to close your eyes, if you find yourself just to you know, kind of ground yourself or if you need to take a walk, because this isn't an easy thing to discuss because a lot of times the things that have happened in our backgrounds and the things we feel about sexuality are very triggering and very difficult and very emotional. So I just want to give you a heads up that sometimes these conversations are a little bit challenging. And this is the thing is we're not going to be talking just about purity. We're going to be talking. I, it's so funny because people, I actually, so I get the little email and we'd like to know if you could, could teach the, um, the purity lesson for the women. And I always go, I'll teach you a lesson on sex. So I actually put in for teaching um, in the last year's um, Denver family conference on, I, I sent the the actual title in and it said how to talk to your kids about sex. So I get to Denver and I'm getting ready to speak and I open up the flyer and it says (laughs) how to talk to your kids about sex and purity. And I'm like, I did not put that on there. (laughs) Isn't that funny? We, it's like, we only want to talk about, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a family thing. It's not just this spiritual family. It's all families. Like, in, but especially in religious families, where the mo- we're like, okay, if we can talk about it in terms of sin and purity and righteousness, great. But how about we just talk about sex, like the song, talk about sex, baby. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about sexuality. I do have an undergrad in musical theater vocal performance, but I won't sing that song for you. <laughs> so first I want to ground us. What is the spiritual view of sexuality? Um, it's vital and important that we understand God's perspective on sexuality. So I'm going to run through this quickly. In Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 23, we see God with the nation of Israel, and he's talking to them about the fact that they're worshiping idols. And he uses sexual language. He talks about how they're they're grabbing your breasts. They're fondling your breasts. It says over and over in that you're, you were, you prostituted yourself. He's not, he's talking to the nation of Israel and he's using sexual language. He's using the language of adultery to talk about idolatry. And then in Ezekiel 23, it even says that, um, they, your lovers had emission like donkeys and genitals like horses. I'm sorry. What is that about? You know, if you've ever seen a horse's genitals, right? Why would God put that in there? He uses vivid sexual language there to to express something. Because if you've ever been in a relationship where someone has betrayed a, a relationship, a love relationship, and especially if it's been a sexual relationship, and this is very true, and I'm talking to marrieds, the greatest fear they have is their partner, one of the greatest fears is their partner committing adultery. The pain of that. So I'm a therapist and I work mostly with couples. I work with individuals as well, but mostly with couples. And the pain of the betrayal is huge. So God knows that we get that. And he uses that language, the language of sexual betrayal, to say, I need you to know my heart. That when you worship other idols, it rips out my heart. So God uses sexual language so that we can know him more, so that we can understand his heart. And he does this over and over when you look at the scriptures. So God uses sexuality by as a language so that we can know him more deeply. He totally does. And you see this in all of creation, right? He uses the physical. So the rocks clap, you know, the rocks shout out and the trees clap their hands, right? God uses physical language to express himself. We know this when we look at creation, when you look at the ocean and the mountains and you go, wow, right? God's communicating to you through his creation. And he did it with Jesus that he literally put himself in a physical body so that we would know him and understand him and see him. 
So he uses the physical to explain the spiritual, right? And he does the same with sexuality. He uses sexuality to communicate with us and explain and share his heart. So sexuality isn't just about the act and it's not just about purity. It's a much bigger thing than that. In fact, it's really interesting when you look at... um in Matthew 1, where it says, Joseph did not know Mary till she brought forth a son. If you have a more recent NIV, it says he didn't have relations with her or he didn't sleep with her. Actually, the word there is gnosko, and it literally means he did not know her. It's the same word where, this is so interesting, where God, where Jesus says, I know the sheep and the sheep know me. It's the same word, gnosko. And the same word where he says, I know the father and the father knows me. So the depth, how well do God and Jesus know each other? You know, Jesus is God. So they probably know each other really, right? How well does God know you? How well? Yeah, right? How much does he want us to know him? Right? That depth of intimate knowing is the word that's used to describe their sexual relationship in Matthew 1. Like, what's up with that? I think it helps us understand how God views sexuality. That it's not just the act of orgasm or the act of two bodies coming together, possibly creating a child. That's, it's, it is about a depth of intimate knowing. So we need to understand sexuality from God's viewpoint. And it's interesting because this is also in the Old Testament. Um, in Genesis 4, Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. It's the, it's in the Hebrew now and it's the word Yada, which actually in Jeremiah, that they will know the Lord because they will all know me. Yada, yada. Okay, you know the yada, yada, yada. Yeah, that's the word, to know. And it's the word that he uses to describe the sex between Adam and Eve. So in both the Old and the New Testament, this word, to know, describes what sex is supposed to be about. It's about intimate connection between two people, right? So, I'm just giving you this big overview. So, also, this one we know a lot better. We tend to talk about this one a bit more. How our knowing of God then guards and guides our sexuality. When you look at Romans 1, if you look at the bottom there, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, that's the gnosko word there, epigenosis, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. So, our knowledge, our depth of intimate knowing of God is what can guide and guard our sexuality. In First Thessalonians 4, the heathen who do not know God give their bodies to sexual immorality. So our relationship, our depth, not just I go to church, I read my Bible. No, this is knowing his character and knowing his heart. Knowing him. That's not just having uh, things on my phone to stop it from going to uh, pornographic sites or not just having somebody that I confess to, although I'd highly recommend all of those things when it comes to purity. The thing is, it's our knowledge of his character and his heart that will guide and guard our process of staying pure because purity is not just when you're single. This whole thing about I stayed pure until I got married, what? No, 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 no. Purity is lifelong, single or married. You know, we have to redefine purity. So I'm going to do that for you in a little bit. But let me just show you a couple other things about what does the Bible say about sex? Single people? The Bible says a lot about sex. Actually, what's really interesting is the book of Song of Solomon. It's a whole book. Don't let people tell you it's a metaphor. It's a whole book about sex. The Bible is the only world religion text with an entire book about sex. God prioritizes the goodness of sex. But although what happens is by not talking openly about it, we make it seem dirty and ugly and something to be hidden and bad, right? So what else does the Bible say? Well, this is out of Song of Solomon and Proverbs. Actually, it talks about how when he looks at her breasts, he's intoxicated. So now this is like many of the scriptures. It's a uh, male to female scripture, right? But it, like many of those scriptures, is teaching a point about how this is what sexuality should create. This word here, the word intoxicated, means reeling around drunk. Okay, guys, just so you know, all those magazines out there that talk about how great sex is supposed to be, it's actually in the scriptures. That it's just, it's important that all of us grasp, the Bible talks super positively about sex. It says that, gosh, orgasms, when they happen, they are a little bit, they make you real and whirl around. Yes, we're in a class with single people, and I just said the word orgasm. Can you believe that? 
um, actually in 1 Corinthians 7 where it says that he's burning for her and so go ahead and get married. So in other words, sex should make us burn. God just says, let's make sure the burn happens in marriage. In other words, let me tell you, when I, when I read these ones, these ones right here to married folks, they read them and go, well, that's not happening in my marriage. So the reality is if you learn today about the godly view of sexuality, I really believe it's going to make a difference if God blesses you with a marriage one day. Because you need to understand how incredibly positive the Bible speaks about sexuality. That it can create and should create a healthy burning within the within marriage. It can create that intoxicated reeling feeling. And then oh, Proverbs and Song of Solomon both use all these water images. A cistern, which is a constantly refreshing well of water. A fountain, a spring. The Bible is very sex positive. What we tend to focus on is there's many more scriptures about what not to do sexually. And that is true. When I first studied uh, became a therapist and started, well, no, this is before I became a therapist. This was probably 12 years ago when I first started teaching on sexuality. I spent an entire year looking up every scripture on sex in the Bible before I taught my first lesson on sex. Why? Because I wanted to make sure that what I was going to share was deeply grounded biblically. The reality is, yes, the majority of scriptures are on all of the damage that sexuality can do. But what's important is we have to understand the full picture because the Bible obviously speaks incredibly positively about sex. And when you put it in the bigger picture about intimacy with God, God knows us intimately. We just talked about that, right? He knows our thoughts. He knows when we lay down. His hand is upon us. He created our inmost being. My frame was not hidden from you. I made you in the secret place. Your eyes saw my unformed body. And then look at the words he uses to describe us. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Beloved holds us by our hand, engraved on his palm. He carries us in his, in his arms close to his heart. God created us to be intimately connected with him and with each other. But look at this. We are create. These are the words he uses to describe his relationship with you, right? We are created to be intimately connected. So intimacy is spiritual. It might not. This is kind of the world's death. Oops. Will this play? Shoot. Do I have anybody in here? Nope. Anyway, it's an axe commercial. It's really funny. And so what happens in this commercial is uh, the world starts falling apart and buildings start falling over and cars start crashing. And everybody in the scene, like the, like two people are like, oh, like this bus falls over and a bunch of cheerleaders come out of it. And a bunch of guys who are waiters in a restaurant all meet up in the middle of the street, in the middle of this bus wreck. And we think that that's what intimacy, sexuality, and romance look like. This fevered, panting kind of response. Um, I don't know if that matches what we see in these scriptures, right? God's definition of intimacy might be a little bit different than the world's. We tend to be really bought into the media and movies and TV and I'm, I'm married. And let me tell you, when we have sex, we're not always panting really heavy, throwing each other's clothes all over the room, shoving each other up against the wall, slamming each other into the bed and having orgasms all at the same time. I'm sorry to tell you, but that's not actually how it works in real life, even though that's what the movies show it to be, right? The thing is, is that when people aren't engaging in sexuality because they're choosing to wait to, to engage in sex till they're married, we still have touch needs. Actually, the therapist I use a lot, uh, her work, she talks about skin hunger and that our bodies have the need for touch. And I'm just going to do something right now. Everybody stand up. And give each other a hug. Just give each other a hug. Make it a little long. <laughs> Go ahead. Give each other hugs. Uh, hug each other. Sit down whenever you're comfortable. Give each other a big one. Thank you. The biggest organ in your body is what? What's the largest organ in your body? Your skin. 
We need touch from our sisters. I t- when I talk with married individuals, I say, you should be hugging your singles and your campus students and your teens. I get asked, you know, is it appropriate for brothers and sisters to hug? Did anybody see the reach video on hug, on hugging? Oh my gosh, at reach, they showed this video on hugging. It was so funny. And it's like, this is the purity hug, (laughs) right? I get it. Okay. I don't want to smush my breasts up against his chest. Okay. But the reality is how do we have really genuine touch in a singles ministry and not cause somebody to then be on their own later and start spinning with sexual thoughts, right? So how do we enjoy what we need and what God has created our body to need? And then how do we also protect it from? I think sometimes we can be so scared about what we're protecting it from that we can fail to meet the physical need, which is touch, right? So you need to examine for some of you. I actually realized right when I said stand up and and hug, some of you probably were like, I hate this. I hate hugs. I hate touch. I really don't want anybody touching me. Well, sometimes because of our background, we will feel differently about touch. And guess what? That comes into marriage as well. Um, and that's not a bad thing. People just have differing levels of what feels good to them. And talking about it's key. Um, often women will say, and men, that they experienced a withdrawal of affection during puberty, that they hit their teenage years and their dad stopped hugging them. And they're, if they're a boy, their mother stopped holding them. So it's a huge issue around touch. We can have that discomfort around touch. You may have experienced very violating touches. And so it was hard for you when you came into the church. Touch was so, everybody's so touchy-feely. And it's like, oh my gosh, and touch feels violating. So actually a part of sexuality is working through our feelings about touch. There are major health benefits to touch. Actually, cancer victims um, who have gone through surgery... Uh, go, their repair time is shorter when the, someone's holding their hand. So we know that touch is huge. That's just one of a, multiple studies. So we know that there are huge benefits to intimacy and touch. So we need to be touching each other. So how does that fit into boundaries around dating? I hate, I'm not always found the word boundaries, but I think one of the things, can you tell? I think one of the things we have to realize is if you do have certain boundaries, like these are the things I don't want to engage in in a dating relationship or with brothers or so on. One of the things you want to check is if you have ever passed those boundaries, why did you? Often um, our integrity and the things that we want to live by, we give them up for different reasons. And it's important to realize, do I... Do I value myself less or do I think less of myself? And so I therefore, because I'm feeling the pressure from this person, let them do things with me that I actually don't want to do. So that's important in dating. Um, how do you pursue your own integrity? And yet at the same time, how do you enjoy touch but be wise about the things that cause that sexual zing. And we're going to talk about the zing in just a minute. How do you enjoy during dating, during engagement? Um, enjoy, because one of the things that's important is that, uh, people have to make decisions about whether they're going to engage in certain kinds of touch during engagement and dating. My husband actually said to me on the day he asked me to be his girlfriend, he said, um, I don't want to kiss. And I was until later, he didn't say what later meant. I, we both knew we were going to marry each other. Um, but the reality is I was like, okay, I didn't actually feel the same concern he felt, but we had been leading the singles for a number of years together and we had seen rampant immorality within the ministry. And so I got it and I was like, okay, I I get it. Let's not get close. Um, but sometimes like when I, I was actually engaged before I was on staff in Tucson before that I met and married my husband, I was engaged in Tucson. And, um, sometimes that zing, that physical, the vagina starts throbbing thing that zing through the body, it'll occur on things that you wouldn't think are very sexual. And so one of the things that happened with us is when we were dating, he took my hand and bit the knuckle, you know, I tell you that just sent me through the roof. And how do we talk about that? 
right? Because he's over there going, this is playful. And you're going, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to go home and try not to masturbate. You know, I mean, it's, it's hard because we want to enjoy our body responding. Actually, God created your body to respond sexually, to get you ready for enjoying sex, to create lubrication and all of that. How do we enjoy the touch? How do we guard the zing and so on, right? And I'm going to talk a little bit more about it. How do we talk openly when we're dating? And this is, I was talking with one of the sisters who's here in the audience and I said what happens and she said we don't talk about things like should I should we touch each other's thighs because I tell you when I was engaged I purposely this is when we weren't doing well <laughs> left my skirt slightly open so that his hand could rest on my thigh and I did it on purpose and what I didn't know until I found out later was that then he's confessing to the the gentleman who's discipling him that he was struggling with masturbation and I was just like I knew that what I did sent him there and it was a touch to the thigh. So are we openly talking about the bite to the knuckle? It's not even should you or shouldn't you do the bite to the knuckle? There's no should you or shouldn't you put a hand on the thigh? It's are we having the conversations about them? openly and honestly so that we can talk about, I mean, I'm not saying you're going to say to some guy you're dating, by the way, you just made my underwear wet. So I really don't think we should do that. I'm not saying that's the level to which you have that conversation, but there does need to be some way to talk about it, right? Like, you know, that's, I really enjoy that, but I'm thinking that might not be the best for our relationship. I, while we were engaged, my husband and I were engaged and I put on uh, an outfit. We went clothes shopping and I put on an outfit and I came out and he goes, and we just, we were newly engaged and he goes, that's really nice. You should probably wait to wear it. <laughs> and I said, okay. And I bought it and I took it on our honeymoon. So, you know, how do we have those conversations where they're open and honest? We need to, right? Um, we need to have a specific, and also if you, if you're end up engaged, you need to make sure that the person meeting with you is having a very specific, very specific talk around sexuality. In the beginning of our married book, I thank Dave and Judy Weger who had this Oh my gosh, yes. Explicit. She had an explicit, like, wow, discussion with me before we got married. So it's just really important. But often what happens is we wait until that week before to have that discussion. And so one of the things I tell married women is you need to be talking to the single women in your lives. Let them ask you questions. And then you ask them how much detail is best for you. I, I actually don't know. So let's have an open conversation on how I can share with you and then not at the same time cause it to be hard for you afterwards, right? So again, I'm advocating open conversations. Um, I'm going to skip that. So this was me in Tucson, but we're going on. All right. Um, this is what we're going to talk about, what affects our view of, and our living out of sexuality, our family upbringing, sexual trauma, body image. We'll see how far we get today. Past sexual relationships, early use of pornography and reading pornographic material, parental response and shame. I've highlighted the ones I'm going to do today. The rest of those are all covered in the book. Okay, how does body image affect things? Pretty big time, actually. How you view your body now will affect your sexuality later, and it may have already affected your sexuality and relationships you've already been in. So if you've had negative comments in your family about your body weight, about your breast development, oh, you're progressing, look at you. You know, if you actually... Um, your breasts grew earlier than other girls and the comments that people might have made. Or maybe you were small and you felt insecure about the size of your breasts. So that's huge. The way your mother views her viewed her body, or does now, the dieting practices in your family. I had one woman who was a part of a research study that I did that her dad used to bring the whole, this is terrible, used to bring her whole family around, her sister who was obese, and have her weigh herself on the scale in front of the family. Right now, that's a really severe example, but the reality is many of you have experienced some level of that shaming around either body shape or the growth of your body through the years, through puberty or about the lack of body. Boys will generally say that they get teased about the lack of musculature. So male to female can be quite different on what gets said. But also if you grew up with somebody who was constantly paying attention to dieting and how much that affects you, it can be big time. And if you have any kind of a background with eating disorders or if you had family members who did, um, and so on. What else? The media majorly affects 
our view of body image. It affects sexual relationships, even in marriage. It can create where people feel anxious during sex. This actually commonly happens, where they feel like they need to conceal their body. The, the gal whose who's, um, sister was put on the scale, she actually covered up, she actually ended up with anorexia for years. Um, she's re, she's in re, been in recovery, like hasn't struggled with it for probably about 15, but I'd say, you know, 25 years uh, challenged with um, disordered view of her body because of that. But the way it came out in her was through anorexia and covering her body up. And that even in, and she's got a strong disciple marriage and still feels the discomfort of revealing her body to her husband. So the scars from these kinds of things can be pretty long term. Um, yeah, insecurity. Like this is an ad on the top. Right, that came out, I forget, you guys probably know who that is, what that ad is. This is the one underneath it that was the, hello, let's talk about the real thing. Right? This is the reality of our bodies. And the Bible says we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And it doesn't say whether you have fat on your body or not, or whether you're curvy or not. Right? We are fearfully and wonderfully made, no matter what our sizes and shapes. So this is what the media has done. This was the actual picture on the left, and this is what they did. And then she wrote in and complained and said, put the real picture out there. Um, this is, you know, the original to what the um, artistic version, right? Just, okay, let's change the jawline. This is a perfectly beautiful woman, but let's change her jawline. We have to grasp the fact that the Bible says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, take your hands just for a second and put them on your waist. Now put them on your hips. Now put them on your arms. Now put them on your thighs. And say, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You are. And so are your eyeballs and your kneecaps and your nose hairs. Your body, your body is amazing. And often when women touch these parts of their bodies, they're insecure. The trunk is the area of the body that women are very insecure about. God made your, um, who's the poet? She died last year. These are my arms. Maya Angelou. These are my arms. And I can carry things as I go through the village. I mean, she just has this amazing way of saying, my arms, my legs are wonderful. You know, we have to see our bodies that way. Because let me tell you, if we don't, it affects even marital sexuality. Right? Wouldn't you like that if it showed up on your scale? The number on this scale will not tell you what a great person you are, how much your friends and family love you, that you're kind, smart, funny, amazing, that you have a power to choose happiness, your own self-worth. I do work with uh, disordered eating. I am an eating disorder specialist as well. And this comes in a lot on the danger of putting a number to your body. So I'm going to skip this. You know you should be modest. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. I only have so much time. So in my research... We need to, I, I talk a lot about talking honestly and openly about sex and how um, I studied how negative um, interactions during childhood affected sexuality when they got older. I looked at shaming sexual comments and how it affected sexuality as, in adulthood and how when we get rigid rules and there's no explanation with them, how it creates shame in connection with sexuality. So I did a whole study. Um, married women's experiences of shame and sexuality. And these are the things that came out of it. That when we don't talk openly about sexuality, that's the number one reason why we feel ashamed about sex. So we need to, in our families and in our churches, talk openly. How do we talk openly about the pulls to pornography? Gosh, we are going to get there today. How do we talk openly about masturbation and what the draw is to it and what we're using it for? Um, not just what we did and how to stop it, but what? why do we do it? Um, Often people feel very ashamed when they, um, okay, so let me see if this is the next one. No, it's not. Okay, let me go back. Um, when you see a picture, when you read something, when you're watching a movie, and um, have you ever done that where you've listened to a song or read a poem or read a book or watched a movie and all of a sudden your vagina starts throbbing? Right. That is your sexual response cycle. That's actually a healthy, amazing part of your body that God created. To It's blood flow. It's the same thing when men re- achieve erection. It's blood flow to the penis and it creates an erection. That's exactly what's happening to your body when that throbbing happens 
between your legs. Like that's the lips and there's, I'm going to show you that anatomy in just a minute. Well, what do we do when we feel ashamed of that response instead of saying, I am fearfully and wonderfully made? How can we notice that response and go, wow, God made my vagina. Isn't my vagina awesome? Everybody with me say, my vagina is awesome. Okay, the boys are dying over there because I don't think David's having them shout out my penis is awesome, but he should. It is awesome. And so when blood flow goes there and we're feeling arousal, we can then say, oh, wow, God created that. Now what do I do with it? Now I'm going to bring in my values and my beliefs and decide how to respond and what to do with that. I'm not going to shame it. It's a part of how I made. I actually have a, a young woman who, uh, um, she has um, what you would, it's a version of persistent genital arousal disorder. PGAD is the technical term. That means that out of the blue, she'll get orgasms. She doesn't know why. She gets them multiple times a day. It's actually most likely a pain syndrome. We're still in the early stages of studying it. But one of the things that we talked about was what would it be like for you instead of like, I am, I am Lustful, I'm adulterous, I'm in sin, I'm, what would it be like for you to go, gosh, there it is. You know, there's that sensation that just, she does nothing to create it. She doesn't watch pornography. She doesn't touch herself. She doesn't masturbate out of the blue. It'll happen. Some of you might feel that when you wake up and you'll have an orgasmic response from a dream. So it's not a, it's not wanted. These are not women who are wanting this sensation or men who are wanting this to happen to them. And it's very distressing. And one of the things we've worked on is what would it be like for you to just say, well, you know, there it is. It happens. And I'm going to share it with those who are close to me. And then I'm going to go on with my day. And her anxiety around that response has gone down tremendously just because we've been talking openly about it. And then I sent her to a pelvic floor therapist to find out if she's got a pain syndrome that's causing this to happen. So often our shame about arousal or our shame about the fact that maybe we felt arousal when someone touched us when we were younger and so on, that that shame can stop us from talking openly about arousal. And yet it's hugely needed. And so let me just emphasize this. With sexual trauma, there are many different types of sexual trauma. And even today, you'll have a response to that trauma. Even in your marriage, something that might have happened during childhood or in your early adult years or in adolescence, the, the feelings and the shame that happened during that time get embedded in our body. So I have literally 20 seconds to just tell you that how to work through that trauma response is a part of the work that I do and the part of the work I tell people you don't have to wait till you're married to get help with the fact that if you have experienced traumas in your body and in your sexual response, it's important to find ways to talk about that and to get help with that even now. Um, okay, you can engage in healthy sexuality after trauma. And so that is a lot of the work that I do. So in the church, we do tend to address sexuality only when sin's involved. We don't talk to our children about sex, even in the church very well. We tend toward shaming. Religious teachings are often sex negative, and we tend to focus on shame and guilt. And we avoid discussing masturbation, pornography, and same-sex attraction only, though, if it is involving with sin. And we need to figure out how to talk about all of those things. I'm only going to barely tap on same-sex attraction today, but we have to talk about that openly in our culture, in our families, all of the above. Um, we don't do a great job of teaching sexuality like God intends. So what I'm going to show it to you. I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. Yep, and that includes your vagina, right? And there it is. Actually, only the black part is your vagina, just so you know. The whole area is a different V word, and it's called the vulva. So the vulva includes your mons pubis and your clitoris, and it includes the two sets of lips. There's the labia majora and the labia minora. Yes, you're in a singles class, and we are talking about the vulva. The urethra is the little black hole. That's where your pee comes through. Most women don't know where they urinate. They think they urinate out of their clitoris or out of their vagina. You actually have a hole there that comes from the bladder. It's a tube. The urethra comes from the bladder, and it's got its own little exit zone there. And uh, just so you know, people always ask, what about G-spots? Yes, single people ask about G-spots. Um, it's actually a, um, a tube of tissue around their urethra. And then the vagina. So the thing is, is people think the clitoris is the little knobby thing. I don't know if you can see it because it's super small. But at the top, 
Um, under the hood is the clitoris, and it's that little knobby part that you can feel. If you haven't ever checked out your vulva, I actually give this to people. I give a picture of this to them, and I send them home, and I tell them to pull out a mirror and check out their bodies so that they can figure out what they look like down there. Um, most women say, oh, my gosh, I can't believe a guy would ever want to look at that. Um, <laughs> what's up with that? I actually have a sister in my ministry. She goes, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, can we talk about this genital thing? Like, they're weird, right? Um, yes, in general, men are fascinated with the sexual genitalia, and women are like, ooh. Actually, some women are able to embrace and go, how amazing this is and how beautiful this is. Georgia O'Keeffe was an artist that did many of these lovely pictures with flowers. So we tend to think of the knobby part of the clitoris being the clitoris, but actually this is the clitoris. The knobby part is just the head that sticks out. It has a shaft, just like the male penis has a shaft, that goes into the body, and then it has legs that go around. So remember, here is the lips, the majora and the minora. Underneath those are the legs, the crura of the clitoris. So actually that entire area is surrounded by erectile tissue. So the male penis, all the erectile tissue, yes, in a female class, I'm doing this. Uh, around, around the penis is erectile tissue, right? For the female, the erectile tissue is all around this whole entire area. Why is it important for you to know this? Because do you have a kneecap? Do you understand how your kneecap works? If you break a toe, do you get to figure out what's in there? When you have pain, do you take an MRI and find out what's in there? I think we should probably know our sexual genitalia as well. It is part of your body, and it is important that we know how it all works, even before we end up deciding to purposefully use it. Um, so it's important. I had somebody say to me, so what you call the crura, which is the legs that come down, she goes, oh, I just learned today I have two sets of legs. I was like, very cool. Um, okay, so how does arousal work? I just explained it to you. It's blood flow that comes to the genitalia. It actually causes um, uh, the erectile tissue to fill up with blood, just like it does in the penis, and the lips become engorged and change color during arousal. So... Yeah, that's usually in farther arousal. But it actually, arousal is a knee-jerk reaction. It's controlled by your lower spine, the initial arousal. In other words, that moment that picture goes through your mind, your brain is not yet involved. It's actually just your lower spine that goes boop, and it sends a signal to the genitalia to release blood flow. So your brain hasn't even... So then I had a sister ask me, so when exactly does your brain get involved? I said, well, it is kind of instantaneous, but I'm just saying we tend to feel so guilty about that initial response when actually it's a God-given response to prepare your body to enjoy sexuality. So it's important that we know that, that knee-jerk reaction. It's like you can go into a doctor. The reason why I say it's a knee-jerk, you go into the doctor and they, they hit your knee and it goes, woo, they're testing for your lower spine. Yeah, because that's probably the better way to test on if that's working than other ways, right? Um <laughs> But that's actually because there's a lot controlled by the lower spine, and one of them is your initial genital reaction. So we already talked about the vulva. We're not even going to get into all this, right? There's all these parts of the body that have erectile tissue around them during sexual arousal. You have all kinds of nerves. Actually, the clitoris has the greatest... So your tongue and your fingertips have a lot of nerves. Your clitoris has about four times as many nerves. God created the female body to enjoy sexuality... And then he said, this is where I want you to enjoy it. He, it's not like he just said, enjoy it everywhere, that there's a time and a place he wants you to enjoy it. But it's important that you know. Did you know this? The clitoris has no other job. The only job of the clitoris is to create that orgasmic sensation. Males don't have that. Their penis does three different things. That's where they urinate from. That's where semen comes and so on. The clitoris has only one job. God created the female body. So I tell women, I actually just came to a couple um, different um, showers for women getting married. And I said, um, and everybody's giving them different advice. And I said, the main thing is, is do not forego the importance of your own enjoyment of sexuality. There is a place for that intoxication and that burning. And so when you get married, if that is what God blesses you with, it's important that you realize that that's where God places, that that is what you should pursue is as well your own enjoyment of sexuality. There we did. Okay, so in all of this, okay, okay, I am going to talk about a little bit on purity. (sighs) 
how do we pursue it? So notice I even changed the wording. I didn't even put purity. I said holiness. How do we pursue holiness and how we treat our bodies? Well, first of all, we have to understand that the word purity in the Bible, there's a lot of scriptures on it. I don't have them here. They're all in the book. That it's actually a word that talks about um, uh, the depth of cleanness and wonder of something that's totally beautiful. We tend to think of purity as something negative, as something that's like a deprivation, rather than we live here, right, and we have bottled water. Now, can you imagine, I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of some of the rivers in China. I have a friend who's from China, and he showed me the river right by his house that he took just about a year and a half ago. And, oh, my gosh, you would not want to drink that, right? So pure water, we go, wow, right? When you've done anything physical and you get a thing of water and you're like, oh, so great, right? But do we approach purity with that same, what a privilege. No, we go, this is such a drag. So I think part of it is you want to make sure you take some time to redefine your idea of what purity is. Um, what is the biblical sexual ethic? Most people haven't even studied it. Have you actually taken some time to study sexuality in the scriptures? Most of the time we talk about it just in terms of don'ts. Don't get pregnant, don't wear that, don't watch that, and don't do that. That's usually the messages from our families, and then it can be conveyed also in our spirit, in the spiritual realms. So, we tend to give tried answers, right? True love waits. Or, those who have sex before marriage get STDs and end up divorced, they don't do it. Like, those are super motivating, right? <laughs> There's actually a book called True Love Waits. Um, we need to find other ways to talk openly about what to do with sexuality, while we're single. Yes, the scriptures say it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual morality, that you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honorable. That word honorable is time and it means beyond value. Do you, I really think the greatest way to pursue purity is to get the view of your body that God has which is valuable and honorable. When you look at 1 Corinthians 12, and it actually talks about how the unpresentable parts of the body and how are we supposed to treat them with honor and special honor. So it's not about cover it up, cover it up, although I think there's some wisdom to that. But the reason, the crown jewels, anybody seen the crown jewels in England? Okay, it's actually, I mean, how many locks are they behind? How thick are the doors and the walls? So when we have something that's valuable and precious, we do keep it under wraps. <laughs> so just not anybody can grab it. But the reality is the reason why we do, why do we do it? Because it is so precious and valuable to God. And we have to have a new view of our body. So how do we pursue it? Now, one thing you need to figure out if anything's challenging that view. If you're struggling with a, reading a lot of romantic novels, that's my background. If you're struggling at all with fantasizing, um, where do you draw the line between what you can and can't do in dating? Should you invo be involved in any kind of touch that leads to orgasm? If you talk about sexuality, do you feel shamed for bringing it up? Do you feel like people might tell other people about your struggles? That's a big one. How are we doing on our confidentiality within the body? Can you tell me how much time I have? Okay. Um, do we have groups for women? We tend to think that only men, well, you guys don't think this, but our church can tend to think this. The purity groups are for men because men don't struggle with pornography and masturbation. Uh, women, excuse me, women don't struggle with pornography and masturbation. And that's just not fair because the reality is all, many, it's, yes, it's a higher percentage of men. It's like actually when they look at the literature and the research, yes, they've done research on it. It's about 40% of women and about 90% of men. So yes, there's a large difference in percentage, but that does mean that there's 40% of you sitting here that could use some support on how to maintain the boundaries around your sexuality that you want to have. So how do we talk openly about pornography? Number one, we have to say women, got to get rid of this sentence, women don't struggle with it. We have to have honest conversation about the pulls. This is out of James 1, where it says that by his own evil desire, a man is pulled away and enticed, and then it gives birth to sin, which gives birth to death. We tend to pay attention to the give birth to sin and gives birth to death part, but look at the first part. Desire and enticement. We need to find out what's what's drawing you. I'm going to go past all these. Um, 
Mm, yeah. Okay. What is drawing you? There are some real needs that people have that often they'll use sexuality to meet those needs. Maybe they're anxious. And so an orgasm helps them feel less anxious. Well, that's true. Um, oxytocin floods the body when you have an orgasm. So, so a lot of women and men will use it married and single because it helps them with their anxiety. However, let's read this this paragraph. When you need rest, relaxation, relief from stress, you may seek to fill it with something entertaining or fun. You may pursue something sexual that often becomes an automatic way to fulfill that need. However, there can be such a greater sense of fulfillment if you choose differently. When that wave of desire washes through you, pulling you towards a sexual behavior, getting on the computer, scrolling through pornography, reading or watching something or masturbating, instead pursue another way to fulfill that need. Find out what the draw is, right? Instead pursue something, instead of pursuing something sexual, will do something fun with a close friend, play basketball with someone you're reaching out to, go somewhere beautiful that fills the soul, share healthful feelings with a close friend, reach out for a compliment and hug a real friend. Here's another one. Finding good, robust ways to live bodily is so important. What do you do with your body? You know, we tend to think, well, you know, when I have that sexual urge, I'm just going to go do something sexual. You might need to do some other things more bodily. Dance, hike, go play in the ocean. My gosh, we live right here. Hug your friend. Feel the water of a river on your skin. Do yoga. Enjoy a softball or a soccer game. Ride a bike. Hug a friend. I said that again, right? Turn on the music and dance. Climb a mountain. Hike to a waterfall. It's an incredibly important way of maintaining a celibate life is living passionately in the body you have. All right. So just so you know, you can read all more about that in my book. You need to have an action plan to stay pure, put protections on your advice, your devices, have a godly view of sex. So all the stuff I've covered so far, make the body you're looking at. If you're struggling with lust, make them a person, have a solid plan. First of all, accept arousal, check how, how well you're doing, bringing your values in to your process how your values lead your response to that arousal, get the support that you need in a group or individually, find ways, distractions useful. It's just not the only thing you want to do. And then this is, I love this one. This is from Jennifer Winner's book. I might get the name wrong. And she talks about journaling to your future spouse. Right? I was like, ah, I wish I'd done it. So these are some resources for you. The Guy Hammond's book, Tempt Away, we think, oh, that's about homosexuality. No, buy 60 Seconds Tempt Away. Guy Hammond's book on sexual um, temptation is so awesome. Robin Widener's Grace Calls, amazing book. Douglas Rosenau's Celebration of Sex for Marrieds and Singles has a section on singles. Prodigal Pursued, This is she's a, a same-sex attracted woman. Amazing, not well-written book. Amazing story. Real Sex by Laura Winner. I highly, highly recommend that book. And then there's mine. The body isn't made for sexual immorality. We should flee it, right? Why? This is the key. Why? Why? Because you were bought at a price. Guys, we need to remember how God views us and who he is. If you haven't studied the character of God and how he feels about you, again, in your email to me, I have a list that I've studied over 30 years on how God feels about me. Go study those things. Biblically define who you are, how God feels about you. Look at those lovely words, right? Do you know those scriptures? Know his heart and his character. And there you go. Okay? It has been lovely to be with you guys. You've just listened to the Elevate Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit elevatecoastal.com.